Most of us in this room, we know uh, what you're supposed to eat in order to be healthy. You know, it's no mystery to you, you know that you're not supposed to eat very much red meat, and you're not supposed to eat very much sugar, and you're not supposed to eat very, very much white bread, and you're supposed to eat tons of vegetables and fruit and whole grains. You know that, right? You know it, but almost none of you do it. Why? You don't want to, right? You know that's the right way to live. You know that's the nutritious way to live. That's going to be the best for your health. You don't do it because you just don't want to. It's too tough. You like the red meat too much. You like the sugar. You like the white bread. Uh, You don't like all those veggies and all that fruit. It's just too much. You would be fine, some of us, to go a whole day without even seeing a vegetable or fruit, right? But that's not the way you're supposed to. That's not really a healthy way to live, but we don't care because we don't want to. Well, this passage is sort of like that. Um, When you preach through a book, you have to preach the next passage the next week. And this is a passage that probably most of you don't want to hear about. You probably don't really want this sermon. You'd like another one. But I can't help it. I have to do the next one. And so I have to preach it today and give it to you. Um, And frankly, I think that most of us know what Jesus told us to do. And that it looks like, and the church is supposed to look like this, what we're going to see in 15 through 20. We know that this is what the church is supposed to look like. We know that we're supposed to know each other well enough to see each other's sin and to correct each other and to challenge each other. We know that's the way we're supposed to live, but we don't want to, and we don't. Most Christians don't do this. Most churches don't live like this. Most churches don't get into this. It's just not, it's just not comfortable. I bet some of you have been in church for decades, never been corrected. I bet some of you have been in churches for decades, never corrected a soul. But that's not the church. That's not the way the church is supposed to be. Uh, even now, is, your, is, is something pulling against this? Are you thinking about hitting the door? Are you thinking about leaving? Because we don't like it. We don't like the way we're told that the church, what the way we're told about the, the way the church is supposed to be. We know it, but we don't like it. Um, and, and frankly, I know that many of you aren't going to change because of this sermon. I pray that you do, but I don't think we're going to, some of us. I think you're going to hear it. And you're going to move on because you don't like it. You're going to get this out of your mind. As soon as, you, as, soon as that roast beef hits your, hits your tongue uh, and, and, and an hour and a half, you're going to be, this sermon has begun to melt away with that roast be- delicious roast beef in your mouth, and you're going to forget all about it. Um, three points I've got today from this passage. Number one, God corrects you through the church. Number two, God disciplines you through the church. Number three, God forgives you through the church, okay? God corrects you, God disciplines you, God forgives you all through the church, okay? So the first one we're going to begin with is God corrects you. God corrects you through the church. And I'm not talking about this sermon right now, although he does work through preaching and work through teaching, but this passage is about something else. Of course, every church has preaching and has teaching, but, and that's generally out to all the people. This is for all the people at once. We're all supposed to hear it. But we're talking now about when the church comes to you in one person or maybe a, or a group of people, they come to you and they speak to you alone. You're sitting there. No one else is there with you. And the sermon's aimed at you. And it's correction of you as an individual. You are being corrected based on God's word, not based on someone's feeling or someone thinking they can divine your motives, which they can't, 
or someone saying that, uh, that they, they don't like what you did or any of that. It's not about this. This is all based upon the Word of God. We're assuming, I'm not going to keep repeating that over and over again, but you, we are assuming that everything is based upon the Word of God. You're, you're being corrected by the Word of God. But uh, it's like the difference between uh, when you take a class in, in college, you get the syllabus, and the syllabus is for all the students of this class, of this section, all the te- like 100, 100 students that have this, this class or these different classes. There's the syllabus. It tells you when, what the assignments are and when the assignments are due. It's for everybody. That's the sermon. That's the public thing, the general thing. It's for everybody. Everybody can, and people take it or leave it, right? Most, ki- most students do not read the syllabus, and so most of them leave it. And probably most people don't pay attention to the sermon and they leave that as well. But, but, the, but then there's another thing when the professor, and this happened to me in college, that's why, it's on, that's why I, I thought of it. When the professor says, uh, JR, I need to, or sorry, your name, I need to talk to you in my office and brings you in and says, hey, where's this assignment? Oh, uh, I just had a lot going on and I didn't get to it. And I just, it's, it's, a, it's a tough assignment. I just couldn't find the time for it. And the professor says to you, do this assignment and turn it in tomorrow, or you are going to fail my class. One, to you as a person, individual, you get taken aside and told. That's what this is. The sermon to everybody, that's the syllabus. The getting taken aside, that's what the church is also supposed to do. Now do you see this is not something the church regularly does? This is not something the church does ordinarily or regularly, even though it's Jesus' clear command, even though there's examples of it in the New Testament over and over and over again. It's not our typical thing. So look at verse 15. If your brother sins, and remember I'm dropping the phrase against you, I don't have time, I've defended it twice, I don't have time to go into it again, but I'm, I'm dropping that phrase against you because I don't think it's part of the, uh, uh, the original, and you'll see the NIV says that down there. If your brother sins, go and show him his fault just between the two of you. If he listens to you, you have won your brother over. So that's the first step. One person comes to tell you, about a sin that they either saw or that you did against them. It could be against them, or it could just be a, a sin that they witnessed. 16, verse 16. Next step. But if he will not listen, take one or two others along, so that every matter may be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. That's a, a quote, of course, from Deuteronomy. Um, so the idea there is you bring one or two other people to say, hey, it's not just me. This he agrees that what, what we're talking about here was sin and, and you need to deal with it. Or maybe you got two with you and, and it, they're, not, they're, not, they're not pouncing on you. They're doing, we're going to see that the verses, the Bible tells us again and again to do this with gentleness and with kindness and in the most gentle spirit. It's not a superiority thing coming in. We talked about that last week um, and I can't repeat it over and over again, but, but keep, keep in mind that. But, you, but now you bring one or two others, and, and, and the two or three of them say to you, hey, we all agree. This is sin, and, and you, you got to do something about it. That's the second stage. And the third stage is this. And if he refuses to listen to them, the two or three, tell it to the church. Um, and if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. Um, we'll get back to that last phrase uh, in a moment. Um, first of all, we just got to see that he tells it to the church. Now, this doesn't mean um, Presbyterians, the way we do this is we consider that the, the elders, we think this is the biblical way, the elders are the leaders of the church, um, and they are elected by the congregation, chosen by the congregation, and they're the leaders of the church. And so they're the ones who, as a group, go to someone uh, for the church 
uh, to, to speak to the person. And it's not one elder going. At this point, we've gotten past one person visiting or two people visiting. We've gotten to now, the, as a group comes, the whole session together as a group. Not one of them thinks this, but the session has examined the matter, and the whole session is agreeing on this and now coming to the person and saying, hey, you got to do something about this. This is sin. We, as your, as your church, as your session, as your leaders, we agree that this needs to be addressed, okay? So that's what we're talking about. So we're talking about someone saying to you, you have sinned, repent. You have sinned. This is a sin. This thing that you did is sin. Repent. That's what we see in verse 15, what we see in verse, with one person, then verse 16 with two people, maybe three, and then verse 17 with the church coming to you in the form of the session um, to, to correct you. And, 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 and the message of all three of them is you have sinned, repent. You have sinned, repent, okay? So correction, God, and, and God, corrects you through, God corrects you through the church. Now look at verse 20, look at verse 20. Now, this is a verse that we like to use for all sorts of different things, but the context is correction and discipline. Um, I, don't th- I think it could be applied to other things. I'm not saying that we can't use this verse for, to, to apply, but you've got re- to at least respect what the original context which was, which was correction and discipline. This is a famous verse. Where two or three come together in my name, Jesus says, the name of Jesus, there I am with them. And the idea there is when those two or three witnesses come to you, to tell you it's sin, um, if, they're obe- if, they're, if they are coming to you and showing you the word of God and, and explaining this to you from the word of God, Jesus is among them and working through them to correct you. That's why I said God corrects you through the church. Jesus corrects you through the church. He is present. And when the session comes to you, and it may be five men or 10 men or 15 men, and they come to you and they've, they have examined this together and they've decided it's sin and they tell you that Jesus is among them and Jesus is in their presence and Jesus is working through them to correct you, to give you a message of correction. You need to, this is sin, you need to repent, okay? Um, a, few, a few other verses that mention this. Uh, I'll just give you two just to give you a taste of it. Galatians 6.1 is probably one of the most famous ones. If anyone is caught in any transgression, it says brothers. In other words, anybody in the church. We're not talking about unbelievers now. By the way, I, I keep having to refer back to things that I did before just to make sure because I know some may have not been here. But we're talking about in the context of the church. Not contr- not, we're not confronting um, the cashier at the hardware store. You know, We're not confronting... Um, we're confronting your brothers and sisters in your church with you, in God's people, uh, in your flock. That's who we're talking about. So he says, brothers, um, if anyone is caught in any transgression, it becomes aware, aware that they're sinning. You who are spiritual, meaning simply those who have the Holy Spirit within them, Christians, should restore him in a spirit of gentleness. Um, and that's, of course, that's the last step of, of restoring them in a spirit of gentleness. But notice the spirit of gentleness and notice they're correcting them um, to get them to be restored, to be back, back, to the, back to what God would have them to be. One other one, 2 Timothy 2, 24. And the Lord's servant must not be quarrelsome, but kind to everyone. So this is Paul telling Timothy, as a pastor, this is the way he should act. Be kind to everyone, able to teach, patiently enduring evil. And then notice the end, correcting his opponents with gentleness. Meaning... Um, uh, pointing out to the, this would also include bad teach, bad 
beliefs as well, but correcting his opponents, correcting their bad behavior, um, but with gentleness. The idea of gentleness is there. So before we move to the second point, I want to make, make sure you understand this. This means for you, what does this mean for you? How would you respond to this and apply this to your life? Um, this means that if, you're, if you expect God to correct you through the church, it means, number one, you live your life with the church. Some of y'all are just hiding from the church. You are keeping the church at arm's length, keeping the churches because so they don't know you, and so they, they can't know anything about you so that you can keep them at length, and you'll pop into a worship service, and you'll pop out, and you don't want anybody to really know you. You know, your, your spouse knows you and sees your sin. Your children know you and see your, your sin. Your parents know you and see your sin. Uh, your coworkers see your sin, but the church doesn't know because you, you keep them at a distance. And that's, that's, what, that's where it all begins is just not living in the church to begin with. The church doesn't really know you. Your pastor doesn't know you, or at least no elder really knows you. And even the people in the church don't really know you. They couldn't call you out on your sin because this is what you do. You show up at, at 1030 and you're dressed really nice and you put on your game face and you are sweet as sugar. For 90 minutes, and then you go home and get back into the real world and the, your, your real life, I mean, and act the way you really act. But 90 minutes, you are sweet, sweet as sugar. But that's not, if they lived with you, they'd know, and they could confront your sin. And the other thing is we have to regularly confess our sin to other people. Um, if, you get, if you are someone who confesses your sin often and regularly, then when you get confronted by someone, it's not a big deal to, to, to confess your sin. Because you're already in the habit of that. You confess your sin. But if you are someone who never, ever has gone to any other human being and confessed their sin, or the last time they did it was 1978, and you never confess your sin to anybody, then you're not, that's just not part of your life. That's not the way you think. That's not your habit. But if you're in the habit, you know, the, the scriptures tell us that if you sin, you should go confess it to someone. And that means the person you sinned against, but also if somebody witnessed you sin. If somebody saw you, and I, once again, we're talking about private sins here only a few people know about. I talked about that a few weeks ago. Not public sins that everybody knows about. That has to be addressed at a public level. But very private sins that only a few people know about, you confess it. If you're in the habit of confessing, then you'll be ready. When someone confronts you, you'll, you'll confess. You'll, you'll be able to confess. And the last thing I'll say before we look at point two is this. If this is so uncomfortable for you and absolutely impossible for you, think about this for a minute. Is that because you don't really believe the gospel of Jesus Christ? Because the gospel of Jesus Christ says you are a desperate sinner and you have no hope except the grace of God, except the merit of Jesus Christ, except the righteousness of Christ being offered on your behalf and being imputed to you and God treating you as Christ. That's your only hope. That's your only salvation. Do you believe that? Then, you, then you're not going to be shocked when someone actually points out one of those sins because you believe there's sin in you all the time. You believe that you're sinning. You know that you're sinning, and you know, and when they challenge you on a sin, you don't feel like they're, they're saying you're not a Christian or that, they're, or that it's upsetting your faith or taking away Jesus from you. No, it's not. It's simply the reality of being a Christian. A Christian is one who is forgiven by the work of Jesus Christ. And so when you get confronted, if you believe the gospel down deep, you really know it. I am a desperate sinner and I am only saved by the righteousness of Christ. Then when someone confronts you, you say, oh yeah, of course. Here's an example. 
Here's an example of why Jesus died for me. This is my sin. This is my sin today. This is what I did today. And I acknowledge it and I confess it. And I, I, I totally want to turn from it. And, and, and I want to seek uh, Christ's forgiveness. Um, okay, the second point is God disciplines you through the church. God disciplines. Let's look at verse 18 first and then go back to 17. We haven't read verse 18 yet. In verse 18, he says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. That may sound, what in the world is Jesus talking about? He's using a metaphor for, for a prisoner, okay? When you have a prisoner um, and the charges are brought against them and you, and you bind them, it's because they've been convicted, and, they are, and, and they're, they're going to be, uh, and, 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 a, and a penalty is going to come upon them. And so you, you bind the prisoner. That shows that the prisoner is um, that the prisoner is, is the guilt of the sin is on them. Um, but if you have a prisoner and you loose the prisoner, it means the prisoner is free to go. The prisoner is, has been, um, uh, their debt has been paid or whatever they did has been taken care of. And now they're loosed. So this is saying that the church either binds the sinner or looses the sinner, either, uh, disciplines the sinner or, forgives the sinner, and that's what we'll talk about next. But the binding here is, is about disciplining the sinner, okay? Um, it said, but notice this. It says, I tell you the truth. Whatever you, church, bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That saying, heaven, of course, is another way that Jews talked about God. They would say heaven instead of God. So that what it's saying is this. If you... Um, if you uh, if the church binds you, if the church disciplines you, God is disciplining you. If it's according to the word of God, churches can stray from the word of God, of course, and then the church is in the wrong. That can happen. It does happen. It has happened. It will continue to happen. But the way it's supposed to happen is that the church binds you or disciplines you by the word of God, and, it says, and that's how Jesus is working. That's how God is working. He is disciplining you. God is working through his church um, to discipline you, which is for your good, the Bible teaches again and again that discipline is for your good and for your benefit, but he's disciplining you. Um, that's why we say God uh, disciplines you through the church. So if you're bound by the church, you're bound in heaven. It is God's discipline, not just the church's discipline. It's God's discipline as well. And then verse 17, what does it say? At the end, that phrase we skipped it says at the end, if he refuses to listen even to the church, treat him as you would a pagan or a tax collector. The idea there is not treat him like tra human trash. Um, the idea is a pagan and a tax collector for a Jew was someone outside God's people, outside the covenant. Um, and so it's treat the person. You're not, you, we can't say that we know the person is not a believer or the person's lost. It just means you treat them as someone who's now outside the church and a rebel against the church, which means if you're a rebel against the church, you're a rebel against God. So you will be treated now as no longer um, someone who's a part of the church, submissive, submissive to the church, obedient to the church, but someone who is now living in rebellion against the church and rebellion against God. Um, that's the way you will be, you'll be treated. And that's what the binding is. The binding is not. The church does not penalize with violence. The church does not penalize with prison. The church does not penalize with any physical, any physical penalties at all. The only penalty, um, well, there's a, there's a penalty of also of, of, of having the sacrament withheld from you. But there's a penalty of the sacrament being withheld or being put out of the 
and being put out of the, uh, of the church uh, as a rebel against the church and a rebel against God. We see this. I'll read two other passages. It's actually in multiple passages, but let me read two other passages where you see this, this idea so that you see it's not just in this one passage, but later in the Bible as well, the apostles. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5.11, But now I'm writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of a brother. Notice it has to be a Christian, someone who's part of your church, who, is, has, faith, who has, has been baptized, is part of the church, faith in Jesus, all that. Not, not a non-Christian, not someone outside the church, but someone in the church. Uh, do not associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if... And this, of course, these sins are going to mean unrepented sins, sins they're living in and they're not repenting of or acknowledging. They're guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reviler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. You no longer associate with them in the way that you did before because they're outside. Uh, the ch- they're now a rebel. It doesn't mean you hate them. It doesn't mean you treat them cruelly or uh, you yell at them, or any of that stuff. It just means it has to be clear to them who they are, that they are now a rebel against the church. And, the, and, the, and, if, and if, you, if you have lunch with them and ask, act like nothing is wrong, um, then, you have, uh, then you're not communicating to them clearly that they're, that they're a rebel against the church. You're acting like uh, that, that, you know, that there's no... And, and there's subtle... I can't go into that in great detail. That's something that takes wisdom. Like all the Bible, it takes wisdom to apply it to certain situations. Every situation is different, and you have to work through the details, but I don't have time to get into all that. So once again, verse 20, which tells us, where two or three come together in my name, Jesus says, there I am with them. Once again, Jesus is present in the session or in the the few members. Oh, well, in this case, it's the session. Uh, the, when the session is disciplining you, those two or, th- uh, two or three, if it's just two or three elders, you know, some churches only have two or three leaders. Um, you have to have at least two. But uh, two or three leaders of the church, if they discipline you, Christ is with, you, with them in this action, if they're doing it according to the word of God, and Jesus is disciplining you through the church. Um, our, our book of church order says this about discipline. It gives five reasons for discipline, and the fifth one is the one we're talking about today. But listen to the other four, and then you'll hear the fifth one. The very last one I say is the one that we're talking about today, okay? Um, the ends of discipline, why we do discipline, uh, the ends of discipline are the rebuke of offenses, the removal of scandal, the vindication of the honor of Christ, so that people don't think that this is what Jesus approves of, the way this person is acting. The promotion, number four, of the purity and general edification of the church, the rest of the church. And then fifth and last, this is the one we're talking about today, and the spiritual good of the offenders themselves. This discipline is done to communicate to them in the most serious terms that we can communicate. You are in trouble, son, daughter. You are, you are a rebel against God. You've got to deal with this. You have got to repent. You have, you have rebelled against the church and rebelled against God. So it's for their spiritual good. 1 Corinthians 5.4 talks about this. And uh, I'll read it, and then we'll look at point three, and it's this. He says, Paul says to the church in Corinth, So when you are assembled together, and I am with you in spirit, Paul says, as your apostle, I'm there present in spirit, And the power of our Lord Jesus is present. Notice that. Same as verse 20. The power of the Lord Jesus is present with the church. Hand this man, a man who had sinned, over to Satan. 
Now, what does that mean? Hand him over to Satan. What, are you, what is that talking about? I mean, are you, really saying, are you really saying, Satan, come get this guy? No, you're saying you're putting him outside the church. You're saying Satan rules outside the church. So you're saying, go back. You're a rebel against God. Go to the, the prince of rebels. Go back outside the church to the place where Satan rules and go back out there. But what's the purpose? Why do you do that? Hand him back to Satan. It mentions two things. For the destruction of the flesh. And what does Paul mean when he says flesh? We've talked about many times. The sin within. The sinful nature. So it's for the destruction of his sin. You put him out so that his sin gets killed. It's so, it take, he, he, when, when you do this, it, 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 it uh, grabs his attention and he, and he um, takes it seriously and his sin actually gets destroyed by this, by, this, um, by this discipline that he goes under. And then the last thing it says, and so that his spirit may be saved on the day of the Lord, meaning he'll repent and when Jesus returns, he'll be one of the saved ones. We're trying to make sure that he is saved and, and forgiven. Okay, that was God disciplines you through the church. The last one is this, God forgives you through the church. Look again at verse 18, with the other word we didn't use. I tell you the truth, whatever you bind on earth will be bound in heaven. That's the discipline. And whatever you loose on earth will be loosed in heaven. This is the prisoner that you untie. The prisoner comes tied up with his sin, and you set him free of his sin. You say, you pronounce to him, when he, when he, and this is, this is when he repents. If he's corrected and he repents of his sin and then the church looses him, the church says, you're forgiven. They pronounce the, 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 the forgiveness over them and, and the gospel of the Lord Jesus. Jesus died for your sins. You are forgiven of that sin and you are set free of that sin um, and you are loosed and you are a part of the body like the rest of us. We're all saved sinners, forgiven sinners and you are a forgiven sinner as well. And so he is loosed. And so God forgives you through the church. Um, I know that we're used to thinking only of, I pray to God and he forgives me um, in my prayer when I ask. And that's true. That's, that's very true. But it's also true that when you're hearing a sermon that's preaching the gospel to you about forgiveness and your heart responds, it's, it's God speaking to you of forgiveness and, 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 and blessing you and bringing forgiveness to you. But also when you confess a sin, you repent of a sin, and someone else uh, speaks forgiveness over you, you are receiving forgiveness through the church, through the work of, through the work of God, and through what he's doing. Uh, once again, Jesus is present, verse 20. Jesus is working through that forgiveness. It's, it's Jesus' work. And now verse 19, which we haven't done yet, uh, last verse to look at, which we skipped. Again, I tell you that if two of you on earth agree about anything you ask for, it will be done for you by my Father in heaven. Um, in the context, these two or three elders who are praying, what are they praying for? They're praying for their brother or their sister who sinned, right? They're praying for him to, to, to repent, to be turned back to obedience, to be sanctified, but also to be assured, to know God's grace to know God's love for him, even though he has sinned, to know his forgiveness and to, you're praying for his benefit, for his spiritual life and his spiritual growth. And it's a, and so that's what you're praying for that. These two or three people, they pray for the sinner. They pray for the sinner to be turned around and healed and restored. Uh, and God answers that prayer, uh, as the elders pray for, for him. Um, 
And you have this beautiful passage in 2 Corinthians 2 when the church had actually practiced discipline and then Paul says, hey, y'all, you're forgetting the next step. They practiced discipline. The person wasn't repentant, was disciplined, and then was repentant. And he's saying to them, hey, they're repentant. You're forgetting the next step. And this is what Paul says to the church in Corinth. He says, the punishment inflicted on him by the majority is sufficient. You've done it. You disciplined him. That was the right thing to do. But hey, hey, it's done. It's over. The punishment's over. The discipline's over. Okay, shut it down. Shut down the discipline. He, he doesn't need to be disciplined anymore. And this is what he says. Now, instead, you ought to forgive and comfort him so that he will not be overwhelmed by excessive sorrow. He's sorrowing over his sin, sorrowing over his separation from the church, and the church is treating him as a rebel and putting him out. He's saying he's excessively sorrow. Go to him as a brother. Go to him as a friend. Tell him about Jesus. Remind him of the gospel. Remind him of forgiveness. And it says, I urge you, therefore, to reaffirm your love for him. Tell him about your love for him and show him love as well. So God forgives you through the church. And many of us, when we sin, follow me on this here, when we sin, we feel condemnation. We feel that guilt. We feel that shame. It burdens our heart. We have excessive sorrow. We're sorrowing under that sin. We're, we're ashamed. We have, uh, Luther used to talk about this all the time, that he would have these bouts of that his sin just overwhelmed him. He had a long German word for it that I won't share with you. Um, and, uh, but it was about his despair and the, and the, and this is way at, this is after Luther was a, a, a reformer after he had, he understood the doctrines of, of, of grace alone, faith alone, Bible alone, Christ alone, gl- the glory of God alone, all those things he knew and taught. And yet he would have these periods when his sin overwhelmed him and he was weighed down by his sin and he felt condemned and he felt any burdened and he said the devil the devil what the devil would do then is the devil would take the very word of god and beat me up with it and what would he do he wouldn't take the passages about forgiveness and jesus he would take the law and and the devil would take like the devil quotes to jesus the word of the word of god he would quote to luther the word of god not literally of course but in his mind in his heart and say look what you've done luther Oh, everybody admires you. Look what you've done, Martin. Look who you are. Look at you. Look at your sin. Look at your sin, Martin. You are trash, Martin. Do you think? And then, and when he said, and then the devil would cover over my Savior with dark clouds. So all I saw was my sin and my condemnation. And the, it was the Word of God, but it was only part of the Word of God. It was the law. It was to say, you have sinned. You are wrong. You are under condemnation. You are under punishment. You are not worthy, Luther. You are not worthy, Martin. And Luther said, I would become overwhelmed by that grief when the devil was hiding my Savior from me. And Luther said, my favorite thing in the whole world, listen to this, what to do at that point was, I would go straight to a brother in the church. I would go to some brother in the church, and I'd say, brother, will you listen to my confession? And the brother would say, sure, Martin. And he would sit down with the brother. He'd say, Martin, he'd say, brother, this is my sin. These are my sins. This is what I've done. And the brother would listen to the confessions. And then he would say, Jesus Christ is greater than your sin. And he has died for those sins, Martin. And you are pardoned. And you are purified. And you are cleansed. And you're a child of God. And you are loved by God. And Christ is in you. 
and Christ dwells in you. Know this, Martin, by the authority of the word of God, which I just, you know this truth, Martin. You've taught it to me. You taught it to me, Martin, but I'm preaching it back to you because you need it right now because you're in trouble and you're overwhelmed by your sin. Hear the word. This is what the church is supposed to do. We're supposed to get people who are lost in their sin and preach, not just on a sermon to the whole group, but to one person and preach to them the word of God. Once they confess and repent, you have you have a great Savior. He is greater than your sin. And, and build Christ up and make Christ as big as he is and bring him out of the shadows and placard him, proclaim him to the person until they recognize their forgiveness and recognize what God has done. It reminds me of that the church's duty in this, that God, God forgives us through the church. The church's duty is like... Um, the child who has night terrors, middle of the night, the child has night terrors. The child is screaming in the room. And what happens? Mama comes running down the hall. Mama flips on the light. Mama says, honey, 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 wake up, 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 wake up. It's okay. You're okay. Wakes her, wakes the, wakes him up, pets his head, kisses his head, whispers love to him, whispers come, you're okay. Everything's fine. That was not real. That's gone. It's absent now. It's over. It's over. It's over. This is what the church is supposed to do for sinners when we are in the terror of our sin, when we are under the darkness, when we're in that dark room, the darkness of that sin, and we are terrified by our own sin, feeling the condemnation of our own sin. Mama church, and this is the way the reformers always called the church, mama church, mother church, mother Kirk, It's supposed to come to you, flip on the light, show you what is real, uh, wake you up from your sin, pull you out of your sin, and then comfort you with the truth of the Lord Jesus Christ. Comfort you with the forgiveness of what Christ says. Wake you up from that sin, pull you out of it so that it's the past. The sin is now past. You've repented. You've confessed it. It's done. It's over. And then comfort you with the comfort of the gospel of Jesus Christ and grace. Now, imagine a church that's working like that. Imagine a church that really corrects people, really disciplines people, and really forgives people. God working through them. Of course, it's God and by Jesus' merit alone.